Well, you can grab your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 24. Open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. You're actually showing up for part three of a sermon that Jesus gave called the Olivet Discourse. And hopefully you were, you were uh, expecting today a sermon <laughs> that is memorable because the sermon is about the end of the world. You picked a great day to come to church. Jesus is going to talk about the end of the world. Specifically, he's going to talk about his return today when he comes back to this world. Ask yourself this, are you ready? Are you ready for the end? Um, you know, there were two most important events in all of human history. The first one has happened. The second one has not happened yet. First, Jesus Christ coming into this world to save sinners. It was the most important event that ever happened in humanity. But the next one is Jesus coming back. He's coming back to rule and to reign. And the Bible teaches that we do have uh, a faith in the past that Jesus died and rose again. And in the present, we can live with that faith. But there's a future tense. And today we talk about what Christians are to be looking forward to. So are you there in Matthew chapter 24, verse 29? Are you there? All right. Let me give you your bearings. Jesus has been talking to us about something called the tribulation. Here's a chart that I showed last week to help you figure out the main events that the Bible says happen in the future. Of course, there was the cross. Jesus died, buried, rose again. Uh, we're in the church age right now, which is the gospel spreading across the whole globe. Uh, but there's, we believe there's coming a literal period, a seven-year period perhaps, called the tribulation, the great tribulation. Um, and we believe the end of that tribulation culminates with Christ Jesus coming back, coming back here. Now, maybe you imagine what happens next as, boom, go to heaven, live on clouds with angels, and that's it forever. But actually, the Bible says what happens next is Jesus comes here, and he rules on this earth for a thousand years to give people a feel for heaven and on earth. After that, what's called the millennial kingdom, then there's the final judgment, and then there's the eternal state, which would be what you know as heaven and hell. Today, we're focusing on, right in the middle, the return of Christ. At the end of the tribulation, what is with this return of Christ? How does it happen? What is it, what is it like? That's what he talks about. So look at Matthew 24, verse 29. It says this, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Wow, that's like cosmic disturbances um, and it also could, with it, contain imagery of political upheaval and religious upheaval. Verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. All right, so if you want to get ready... For the end, there's going to be three things you will need. Three things. The first thing that you will need, you can write this down, is faith. Faith. There are some things that you have to believe if you're going to get ready for the end. Specifically, things that you and I have to believe about Jesus. Who do you think Jesus really is? Do you know a person who's said at one point, well, you know, I think Jesus was just an ordinary guy, and it's his 
followers that took it too far and tried to turn him into something that he never said he was. Do you know that guy? Do you know somebody who said that before? Because here in the Bible, Jesus, talking about himself, says, the nations of the earth will look to the sky, see the sky open, see the Son of Man. That's who he called himself. It's an Old Testament term for the Messiah. See me coming back on clouds with great glory telling angels what to go and do. So, Jesus claimed to be a whole lot more than just another regular guy. Wow. Now, this concept of a king coming back to rule was actually um, spoken of in the book of Daniel. We'll put it on the screen, but in Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14, Daniel wrote this, I saw in the night visions... Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that, listen, all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Who did Jesus claim to be? He claimed to be this king of heaven who would come down being the rightful ruler of every nation, tribe, and tongue. That's who he claimed to be. Therefore, do you agree by faith that he's the rightful ruler of you? That he is the king who will one day come back and you will either be in his kingdom as one of his subjects or you won't. It takes faith to believe that and this is the faith that we believe. And if we walk by faith in the person of Christ, then we'll be ready for his return. Write this down. Here's what we believe. We believe Jesus is the king of heaven who will rule forever. The king of heaven who will rule forever. Look back in your Bibles at verse 30. It says, There will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. It says in verse 31, He'll send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now, this is so confusing and theologically deep, and we can spend forever digging in. But I want to show you what is clear before I deal with what could be unclear. What's clear is this. There's only two groups of people. There's his elect, who he gathers unto himself. And then there's those who are not subjects in his kingdom, and they are left and judged. Only two groups. All these signs are happening in heaven and on earth. All, it's all, I mean, wow, what's going on? But basically, two groups. He gathers his elect. He leaves those who are not his to face judgment. The word elect is such a comforting biblical word. It means God chose to save you. It means he chose to save you. Therefore, your eternal security is bound up in a decision he made. And if God hadn't chosen you, you couldn't be saved. And because God chose you, you can't be lost. Now, I know right away you think, well, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I mean, what about faith? What about my choice? What about, listen, election and faith are concepts that are married in the Bible. We don't need to divorce them. But you have to understand that it's God and his sovereign will who chose you. And if he hadn't chose you, you would never have been saved. It's not something you did all by yourself, all right? He chose you. Therefore, you are secure in his hand. That's why the Bible uses the word elect. And he gathers his elect into one group and he leaves those who are not his 
to face judgment. Now, scholars disagree who these people are, the elect, you see, because it says the Son of Man comes in glory and gathers his people. Now, some would say this happens at the end of that seven-year tribulation, and those who would believe that the church is taken out of the tribulation at the beginning would say, well, yeah, this is not the gathering as in the rapture. This is at the end, more of a gathering on earth. So those people would say that this is a gathering of the Jewish believers and their converts who got saved during the tribulation. And that could be a correct view. Um, it's got a strong biblical case. Um, my personal opinion, opinion is actually that this uh, seems to describe the rapture itself. It seems to describe Christ gathering up his church and his followers unto himself. I believe that because there's significant parallels with the accounts of the rapture in First and Second Thessalonians. There's talk of a cloud of glory and angels gathering and a trumpet sounding. In First and Second Thessalonians, it also mentions a shout and the voice of an archangel. It's loud, it's visible, it's global. Um, therefore, I think it's best, in my opinion, to believe this is the rapture at the end of the tribulation. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. And I really want to emphasize this. I talked about this a lot last week. Uh, but... This is a puzzle. It's the only puzzle I found at our house. It's a dinosaur puzzle, which doesn't fit the theme because we're talking about the end of the world and here these are at the beginning of the world. But some people, when they start talking about end times, even in churches, and they have different opinions, they're obsessed with trying to put the puzzle together. When does the rapture happen? When does the Son of Man? Where's the trumpet? Here's the trumpet. Here's the obsessed with the puzzle. And if you if you try and put it together in a different way than they are, they treat you like you're stupid. Some churches, the pastor will treat you like you're stupid if you're putting it together differently than him, and that's a shame because we're not supposed to get all fired up and wound up about the puzzle. You're not going to be able to assemble it. Trust me, you won't. So what are we supposed to get excited about? We're supposed to get excited about the picture. And while the pieces are being assembled throughout history, we already see the picture of the end. Am I right? So we're supposed to be all fired up about the idea that Christ will return and gather his elect unto himself so that when I'm gathered into his presence, never again will he ever send me away. Wow! Forever? Me with him forever? Yes! Let's let's not get all obsessed and angry and bitter about the puzzle, let's keep our eyes on the picture and let's get excited about that and treat one another with respect. Amen? So faith. I believe Jesus is the King of heaven who will rule forever. And here he comes to gather up his elect into his presence. Uh, listen, the Bible says you will see it. Jesus is very concerned that you, be, that you could get duped. He really wants you, even the elect, to not be tricked. All right? So if someone's like, hey, hey, come here. Come here, I'll show him to you. He's over here in this back room. He's like, don't believe it. It's going to be so obvious, you'll see it. It says in verse 27, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. All right, check this out. This is a picture. That, uh, there's some lightning. You've got to look really hard to see it. Okay, uh, now raise your hand if you don't see lightning. <laughs> because... It's so visible, and everyone can see it, right? So Jesus is like, you will see it. It will be evident when I return, and everyone will see it. In addition, you'll hear it. If you look down at verse 31, it says, He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. They'll gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the earth, uh, heaven to the other. This is the last trumpet. It's a trumpet. It's loud. Okay, it's not like a kazoo. It's not like the last kazoo. It's a trumpet. 
Now, maybe you played trumpet in band and you're thinking of a brass trumpet. Yeah, that actually wouldn't be it. They would more think of a ram's horn. So listen, here's what a ram's horn sounds like. They'd use it for battle. They'd use it to gather for festivals. Go ahead and play that. You'll see it. You'll hear it. It will be unmistakable when the end of the end appears and Christ is returning. Therefore, don't be tricked. Walk by faith because he will return. Hey, you have to ask yourself this. In light of what the Bible says, what do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe he is the rightful ruler of all nations, tribes, and tongues who will return to gather his elect unto himself to leave those who have refused him as king? Do you believe that? Because that's the faith that the Bible lays out. That's what Jesus thought about himself. And you're confronted with a choice that you have to make and your eternity depends on it. 2 Timothy 4.8 then says that those who have found this faith in Christ live with faith in the future that's coming. It says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to those who have, get this, loved his appearing. You're waiting, you're hoping, you're knowing, it's coming. That's faith. If you believe the truth that Jesus came to save us and he will return to reign, hey, listen, you're walking by faith and that'll get you ready for the end. But here's the thing. It's going to take more than faith because Jesus goes on to say that you're not going to know when it's going to happen. There could be a long delay. So here's the second thing you need to get ready for the end. The first is faith. Believing Jesus is the King of Heaven who will rule forever. Here's the second, hope. Hope. Uh, hope is a biblical concept that must also accompany everyone who's getting ready for the end. Let's read these verses. I'll read them to you and then we'll unpack this idea of hope that's being described here. Verse 36 says this, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. All right, so you're not going to know when it's going to happen. You're not going to know. No one's going to know. It's, it's, it's going to be a little later, a little earlier, a lot later, a lot earlier than you thought. And don't listen to the guy who tells you like, tar, 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 look, I figured out the Rubik's Cube. I've got the whole end times mapped. Yeah, he'll show you one side, but the rest of it is a jumbled mess because you can only figure out so much of it. Jesus powerfully said, he said, I don't even know. Figure that one out. He's God the Son. He's omniscient. He knows everything. I could tell you, well, he also had a human mind, so he had to learn things like everybody else. So in a human sense, he, he didn't really know. But I think it was basically trying to convey to you, nobody knows. Nobody knows until the Father says, it's time. So there's going to be a delay. There's going to be a wait. There's going to be a time. How are we supposed to conduct ourselves in the duration? Verse 37, Jesus says, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage till the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware till the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Notice the contrast. Again, it's so simple. You're on the boat or you're in the water. You're among the elect or you're left. You're on the boat, you're in the water. There's only two groups. And Jesus said, yeah, in Noah's day, there were some people who heard the warning. Noah warned them, and they're like, 
what day do you want to get married? Oh, I don't know. Let's check the calendar. Let's pick that day. Oh, that's the day that <laughs> crazy Noah said that the whole world's going to be destroyed because God's angry with us. Noah Shmoa, plan the date, book the hall, bake the cake. Let's get married. And then everyone dies. I mean, ultimate tragic wedding. But that is a portrayal. Listen, it's a powerful picture of someone who is blissfully ignorant of God's coming judgment. They're planning their wedding day when God is coming to judge them. Talk about unaware. Talk about living without hope of God saving you. Completely ignorant, unprepared, not anticipating it and not ready at all. And away they go in judgment. Jesus said that's the same way it's going to be when I come back. There's going to be all these people who are totally unaware that the day is coming. Just imagine that idea. Imagine planning your wedding day, and then it just so happens that it happens on like 9-11, right? We got married. Oh, tell me about your wedding. Was it sweet? Was it special? Was it memorable? Well, yeah, it was like 9-11. Like everyone was just around the TV watching like people dying. <laughs> we don't really like to talk about it. it awful, right? And Jesus is saying, if you don't get ready for my return, you're like planning your wedding during the apocalypse, like during the end times, you're blissfully unaware of my coming judgment. And it doesn't make sense. It says in verse 39, they were all unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. You see the contrast, those who were ready and those who were not. Verse 40, then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The contrast here is between those who are living with hope and those who are living with no hope. Therefore, what does hope mean? Well, listen to the words used stay awake, be ready unaware. Therefore, let me give you a definition for hope that you can write down. Hope is this, facing the future with confident, alert anticipation based on God's promises. Facing the future with confident, it's confident, you're not wishy-washy on the person of Jesus or doubting like waves on the sea over whether this is true. You're confident, you're alert, you know that it could happen at any time. You know that Every moment of your life has eternal significance. You're alert. And you have anticipation. You're looking forward to it. You're speeding His coming along. You're longing for His appearing. That's hope. Hope is not crossing my fingers and hoping my team will win. Hope is not this unfounded superstition. In the Bible, hope is facing the future with confident, alert anticipation based on God's promises. And here in the Old Testament, hope is is portrayed as those who got on the ark. Noah and his family got on the ark because they were looking ahead to being saved from the judgment. And those living without hope are portrayed as those who didn't get on the ark. They were off getting married or going out to eat or whatever, and they weren't aware or ready. Therefore, they were living without hope. Hey, do you have what the Bible calls hope? Titus 2, 11 to 13 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, past tense, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for, here's the future, 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hey, are you living with hope? Jesus goes on to narrow things down. Look at verse 40. He says, then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. He says, stay awake. He says in verse 41, two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. All right? So there's only two. There's only two. He's gone from a group, two groups, the elect and those who are left, to two individuals, me and him. We're out working on the field. Here I am, here he is, and God in his sovereignty looks down. And even though they're indistinguishable among all those living on, you know, the face of the earth, he goes, mine, not mine. So close together. And he takes one and he leaves the other. (coughs) Scholars don't quite know for sure if the one who is taken is taken to the Lord, perhaps in rapture, and if the one is left, is left in judgment, or if the one who is taken is taken away in judgment, like the flood took away the sinners, and the other one who is left is left to be welcomed in to Christ's kingdom. We don't know that, but the point is this. There's only two. One is saved, one is judged. What group are you in? There's only two. There's one who ends up with Christ as his, and there's one who is left for judgment, not his. What group are you in? Those who are staying awake, living with hope, looking ahead to the appearing of the king, will be saved. Those who are asleep, ignorant, not getting ready, don't care who he is, not getting ready for him coming, won't be saved. Only two groups, only two people. One will be taken, one will be left. What group are you in? Jesus says, based on this, you should stay awake because you don't know when your Lord is coming. Verse 42, you ever fall asleep at a really bad time? Dads are really good at falling asleep, right? We take naps at like the worst possible time ever. Movie theaters. Uh, Here's a picture of people falling asleep at the absolute worst time. There's a little baby. Little baby falling asleep in his shoe. (laughs) Here's another picture. This is a guy out hunting. He's out hunting. (laughs) He fell asleep. (laughs) The deer is like, yummy. (laughs) Thanks, dummy. (laughs) I just can't away. That's hilarious. Jesus is like, don't do that. Don't, spiritually speaking, don't be that guy. Completely unconscious to what's coming. Asleep. Lacking alertness. Lacking preparation. And he gives this interesting illustration here. He goes on to say, if you look at verse 43, Know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. He's just saying, you know, talk about the homeowner, right? And, uh, you know, imagine if I were to say, hey, Bob, Bob, I heard this guy say he was going to rob the Anderson household tonight at 2 in the morning. I heard him. He's coming. Would Bob go home and be like, man, I'll beat. I'm going to turn in early tonight. The thief can take whatever he wants. I just don't care. Jesus is like, no, you would be awake, alert, calling the cops, getting your bat ready, right? You wouldn't just let him come in. If that's the way you would get ready for your house to get robbed, and this is a warning of Christ returning to take his people home, how much more should you get ready for that? You'd get all wound up and ready for the fight for your house, but you're not concerned about your soul 
Wow. He said, based on this warning, you need to get ready to get awake, to be alert. Do you know why God destroyed the world in the Old Testament? Do you know why he flooded the earth, men and women dying? We know why. It says in 2 Peter 2, 5-6, we'll put that up on the screen. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example, here it is, of what is going to happen to the ungodly. God can save the righteous and he will judge the wicked. He's already done it once before. He filled the world with water and everyone died. And those who were of faith were saved. He did it once. It's going to happen again. And just like you'd lock your doors and protect your wife, your, ch- your children, your stuff. If a thief was coming, so you need to have that urgency as if Christ is coming tonight. You have to be ready because he will come as a thief unexpectedly. That's called hope. Hope is staying awake. Hope is being alert. Those who have faith in Christ live with hope, which is facing the future with confident, alert anticipation based on God's promises. Those who live without hope have no confidence, no alertness, no anticipation, and no uh, blessing coming from the Lord. Are you living with hope or are you living without hope? Are you living with God or without God? It's one or the other. Two will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. The book of Luke in a parallel account says two will be in the same bed, even a husband and wife. And God looks down and says, mine, not mine. Take her, leave him. Do you have hope? Do you have confidence that when when Christ gathers his people to himself, that you'll be called? Do you have hope? If you want to get ready, you have to have faith and believe the truth about Christ. You also have to have hope, which helps you stay awake, knowing that he's coming. Two groups, one will be gathered, one will be left. Two in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. And now, he goes on to one last illustration. He says in verse 44, You must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. But now skip ahead to chapter 25. Chapter 25, verse 31. He was, Jesus is talking about how it's going to be when he comes, and now he talks about what happens when he is officially here. It says in verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Who did Jesus say he was? Who did he say? Just a usual guy. One of the greats, like Socrates or Confucius or Buddha. Just a great religious instructor who was kind to children and nice to women. And uh, He said he's going to come and set up his throne and do what? It says here in verse 32, Before him will be gathered all the nations. He said he's going to set up a throne and then bring everyone from every country in front of his throne. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are... So this is good. If you sat over here, you picked the right section. Those to his right... He says, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
Wow. So effortlessly, Jesus, who did he say he is? Sets up his throne, brings every person in front of him and goes like this. Sheep, goat. Two groups, two people in the field, two people in the same bed. Now, two lines. Sheep, goats. He's making it so clear. And he has a speech for each group. Notice that there's only two lines. Notice that there's only one judge. Who did Jesus say he was? The one who would sit in judgment over the soul of every person around the world and determine their eternal destiny. Who does he think he is? The only son of God. It's clear who he thought he is. Who do you think he is? But, very interesting what he does. It's judgment time. And he tells these people on his right, the king will say, come, you who are, hey, you're blessed by my father. You guys are all blessed by the father. It says you'll inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's amazing. It's an inheritance, which means it's not your stuff. It's given to you by someone who left it for you. That's Christ. You don't earn your way into this line. You've got an inheritance which someone else is giving you forever. Okay, And it says, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There's election again. There's God's sovereignty again. He's had this blessing. He's been getting it ready from before everything even came, before you even lived. He's getting this whole blessing. He knew you. He loved you. He was preparing eternity from you. But then what does he say next? He said, for, verse 35, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Huh? You're getting into heaven. Congratulations on being elect. No. (laughs) Congratulations on knowing your theology. No. Walking that aisle that one day. No. Profoundly, he doesn't emphasize the truth part of getting saved. What you believed, when you believed it. Instead, he talks about how loving you've been. So you can write this down. Here's the third thing. You want to get ready for Christ's return? Faith, hope, love. Love. Jesus commends even the smallest acts of compassion that you have shown to one another. In fact, he acts like what you did to the least of these, you did right to him. I love when you did that for me. Do you see the balance again? He didn't say, you're elect, congratulations, get in. He's like, yeah, the Father's been getting this ready from the creation of the world. But I've been watching even the smallest acts of love that you have been doing for one another. How important are my choices in the judgment? Eternally important. Every small one of them is noticed and will be noted. And it's love here that is being emphasized in the judgment. Now, truth people are freaked out about this because it's like, wait a minute, I know I need to believe the gospel. I know I need to be converted. True, true. But listen, for all of you truth people like me, let me just say this. Act like love is the only proof of your faith God will accept in his court. Live in a way where you act like love 
is the only proof of your faith God will accept in his court. Jesus wants you to walk, how do I get ready? How do I get ready? He really wants you to know, I have to love deeply, especially Jesus' brothers. You know, for Christians, we're supposed to love one another. Jesus said, they'll know you're my follower by your love, right? What did Jesus say when he sat Peter down after Peter was a bonehead, right? He sat him down and he didn't say, read your Bible more. You don't know truth. He's like, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? How important is love in the judgment? Eternally important. Now, these people are surprised. They're surprised in verse 38. They're not surprised that they're saved. They're surprised at what the judge is discussing. It says in verse 38, when, when did we, or verse 37, the righteous will answer him, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Do you know what we learn here? Uh, we learn that Jesus takes it personally when we love one another. When he says they're the least of these, my brothers, that definitely means fellow Christians. It means you were loving toward the family of God, the children of God, the people of faith. You were with them and you were lovingly one of them in community. That's what he said. Now we have to be careful here because this scene of judgment with the sheep and the goats and what he's saying about the love, we have to understand that this isn't meant to to describe everything that will happen in your judgment. There are other passages in the Bible that discuss judgment, and it will come up, whether you're in the, in the Lamb's book of life, what you believe. Okay, all that will come up. So this isn't meant to show you everything that's going to happen in your judgment or everything that's going to come up. This also is not supposed to be describing every judgment. The Bible speaks of several different judgments. If you were to die today and go into his presence, you'd be evaluated for faithfulness. And then, can we put that... Uh, end times slide back up there again, guys. Here's the sequence again of the end times. You know, this judgment happens in the blue square, which is the return of Christ. But the final judgment, the white throne judgment, actually happens after the millennial kingdom. Okay? So this judgment that he's talking about um, isn't supposed to be every judgment that's going to happen, and it isn't supposed to be the only thing that's going to come up, just so you get your bearings. It's supposed to prepare us for our judgment. And what Jesus wants you to get loud and clear is how important love is going to be when you stand before him and you are evaluated. Faith, yes, believe what you heard. You have to to be saved. Hope, you got to cling to it throughout your life here. You have to stay awake, but you have to love. You have to walk in love because he loved you. Write this down. Not just faith, not just hope, but love. I have to display Christ's love to others because of his great love for me. Now you have to understand this too. You're not supposed to understand these acts of love as being what saves you. There are six acts of compassion listed here. Giving food to the hungry, water to the thirsty, welcoming the stranger, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, visiting the prisoner. Listen, I can go out and do those six things tomorrow morning and then murder someone in the evening. I'm not going to heaven. All right. Oh, look, on that one day, you did all these six things. Congratulations. Welcome to heaven. It's, love is the evidence of faith. Do you understand that? It's not your actions that saved you. But how can God's love be in you if you don't love your brothers? Right? So love is the evidence. It's the proof. 
It's not what saves you. Are you a sheep of Christ? Because here on my right are the sheep. Jesus is their shepherd. Ezekiel 34, 31 says this, You are my sheep, humans, sheep of my pasture. And I am your God, declares the Lord. Do you have Christ as your shepherd, as your king, as your judge? Are you trusting him alone to give you the verdict to get you into heaven? Those on his right, the answer is yes. You've shown it by the way you've loved one another. Those on his left, you picked the bad place to sit this morning. I'm really sorry, but I've got to talk to you about what Jesus says to you now. Look in the Bible again. It says here in verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison or did not minister to you? And then he will answer to them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. Eternal life, eternal punishment. Inheritance, kingdom, blessing, cursed, fire, forever. You're in the wrong line, guys. <laughs> you picked the wrong... You ever, you ever stand in the wrong line? You ever stood in the wrong line? I've stood in the wrong line. All right. Jesus is illustrating this to warn those people like you who are in the wrong line. I was in the wrong line at the DMV. I had to just get a license plate sticker. That's all I needed. So I got in the one line, and I walked through the maze. Little turnstiles, right? You got to walk through this whole line, 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 line. I get up to the counter. I'm like, hi, I need a vehicle sticker. Here's my check. Here's my proof of insurance. And she's like, oh, you're in the wrong line. I was like, what do you mean I'm in the wrong line? You got to go over to that line over there. What's, what's different about that line? As if like that guy over there at that counter has been uniquely trained and equipped to Hand me a sticker. We can't do that at this counter. It's only that magical counter that has them. What? They go all the way to the other line and then go through the maze again. You know what it's like to be in the wrong line, right? All right, so Jesus is basically saying, congratulations to you all. You're in the right line. You guys need to wake up. You're in the wrong line. And there's only two lines. There's only two In the line over here, he says, depart, cursed, eternal fire. Why is there a hell? I don't get why there has to be a hell. Well, you see, there's, there's these angels that rebelled in heaven and filled it with war and sin, and God made a place for them, and that place is called hell. Then that war spilled over in Eden to creation, and then there were humans who rose up and said, well, we don't like God either. So they're going to end up in this place that was originally prepared for spiritual rebels. Where else could they end up? if they refuse the love of God. That's the origin of hell. But Jesus is offering you a chance to respond to what you're hearing today. If you have faith in what you heard, that he is the returning king and the judge, your judge, then you can respond and you can live with hope. Hope, anticipation, not fear, not worry. Hope that you will have a place in his kingdom and he will receive you when he returns. And your life will be filled with love for others because of his great love that he showed you to save you, even though you rebelled against him and sinned. His love will transform you and make you more loving toward all those in your life. Are you ready? Do you have what the Bible calls faith? Do you have what the Bible calls hope? 
Are you living what the Bible calls love? Well, this seems a little harsh, Ryan. I mean, it says here they didn't give water to somebody who's thirsty. They're going to hell because they didn't give water to a thirsty person? little background. I think that lack of love does show a hardened heart, selfishness. Lack of love for Christ, lack of love for His church shows a hardened heart. So that's also proof of your lack of faith. But it says in verse 39, As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Elsewhere in the New Testament, when Jesus talks like this about the least of these and my brothers, there's a place where He sends out His, uh, his apostles to share the gospel. Okay, and what he says to them is, he who rejects you, rejects me. So in talking of the least of these and my brothers, there's at least one other verse that makes it sound like Jesus might be talking about those messengers who went out during the time of tribulation. And boy, were they suffering because the whole world turned on them and didn't believe what they were saying. And so perhaps what this means, it's my opinion, is that these people in the world saw these Christian messengers, these bearers of the gospel, perhaps even Jewish converts and 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 wouldn't even give them water and that's how much they thought of the message they were bearing as the whole world was falling apart i'm not even giving you water and based on that reaction perhaps to the messenger and the message jesus says yeah it's like you didn't even care enough about me that you would give me a cup of water if i asked because that's how you felt about me you're going away forever and there's no hope of any other ending to your story Whatever he meant exactly, it's very clear there's two lines. Are you in the right line? Are you in the right line? Two will be in the field. One will be his, one will not. A group of the elect will be gathered to him. The rest will be left in judgment. Which group are you in? Which group are you in? Because today Jesus is sharing this in advance because he wants you to be awake, to be ready. The Bible says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And maybe Christ brought you here today to hear this life-saving message so that you can trust him as the returning king, the one who will judge all. Have faith in him that he died on the cross and rose again, that he alone can give you eternal life, that he alone can welcome you into his kingdom. If you believe that, you can live with hope. Then you can truly learn to love others selflessly. If you reject that, you have no hope. This life will be filled with selfishness and bitterness and anger and lack of hope of the next life. Jesus wants better things for you. Are you in the right line? Are you in the right line? Jesus is giving you a chance to make that choice today. Let me pray with you. Lord Jesus, thank you in advance that you've warned us of what's coming. We can't see these things yet. But the Bible has been so accurate in predictions from the Old Testament that have come to pass, even predictions about your birth and your death. And you already poured out your judgment once upon the earth. Your judgment will come again. Thank you, Lord, that all of us who have faith in Christ can live with hope as we love one another. We have nothing to fear. Not a hair on our heads will perish. We praise you, Lord, because nothing in this world can take away our hope. We worship you, Lord, because you are the one judge, the King of kings. But Lord, some don't have that hope yet. Some are here this morning and they are 
worried that they're in the wrong line. They don't have hope, they don't have confidence, and they haven't had faith. I want to give them a chance right now to respond to what they've heard by praying this with me. Lord Jesus, I believe you are who you said. The king who came and died, who rose and will return. The king that I need to save me. I believe that. Give me hope of heaven. Teach me to love one another. Show me that I will have a place in your kingdom that will never end. Use me in this life to serve your purposes. Father, for those who are crying out to the Lord Jesus here this morning, fill them with the knowledge of your love. Never will you leave them. Never will you forsake them. You are their shepherd. They are your sheep. You will guide them through this life, even through the valley of the shadow of death. Praise you, Lord Jesus, that you would even save us. We worship you as king, and we long for your glorious appearing.